You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Antiretroviral therapy has transformed since the 1987 introduction of zidovudine, AZT. Although these medications are now extremely well tolerated with few drug interactions, concerns for weight gain among the integrase inhibitor class may cause clinicians to increase vigilance and monitoring. Hello and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. We have come a long way in the treatment and management of HIV and have an array of medication options with the cornerstone being integrase inhibitors. In recent years, however, data has emerged showing that an association between integrase inhibitors and weight gain is correlated. And we're going to talk more about that. I'm excited to have Dr. Corin, who is going to share with us why weight gain is important in people living with HIV. Dr. Corin, welcome to PTCE Connect podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's dig into this. We know HIV treatment has come a long way and uh, we're seeing positive outcomes. However, there are side effects, and one of them with this specific treatment is weight gain. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Sure. So I think what we need to do actually is actually take a step back because we need to put the problem in complete perspective. So what we have now are very safe and efficacious antiretrovirals, but we've traded off these significant tolerability and toxicity issues with a new focus on what we're here to talk about today, you know, HIV-related general diseases of aging. And this is a really good problem to be talking about because we're not, we're no longer talking about significant safety and tolerability issues of you know, earlier generations of medications. And so even we can look at this you know, historically, if you will. So we've had a complicated relationship with weight gain and loss in the context of the HIV pandemic. You know, if we go back to those very, very early days, even pre-antiretrovirals, you know, when AIDS wasting syndrome was one of the primary concerns, this was largely cured with the initial introduction of antiretroviral therapy. And then we moved into that early generation of antiretrovirals where we looked at lipoatrophy that was caused by those early nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. You know, some medications that maybe some of the younger listeners out there may not have even heard of or used, such as didanosine or stabudine or, you know, zidovudine, if you will. And then we moved to more recent generations of classes, such as lipodystrophy and some metabolic effects by early agents in the protease inhibitor class. So, you know, these days, what we're looking at is that as medications have developed, those safety standards and efficacy raise higher and higher. You know, I, I like to say to my students and residents, you know, we're, we're recording this during the Olympics that are going on right now. And that as new medications come out, we, we think like the high jumper, we raise that bar higher and higher. And so as a new medication comes out, we have to raise that bar. And what is the bar that we're raising? It's safety and efficacy and tolerability. And so 
what we now have landed on for the frontline medication regimens are the integrase strand inhibitors. You know, these are medications that are used either they're available, excuse me, by themselves or in combination medications, raltegravir, elvitegravir, dolutegravir, and bictegravir. The problem that we're here to talk about today of integrase strand inhibitors causing weight gain was thrust forward with the results of two main clinical trials. And these were ADVANCE and NAMSAL, both of which were put forward in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. By no stretch of the imagination were these the first two, but these were the two that really put this problem into perspective. We had had some earlier literature kind of showing some maybe some minor signals, but these, you know, from a cost benefit or a um, disease state benefit ratio, we really looked at the integrase inhibitors as proving significant advantages over everything else that was out there. But with advanced and NAMSAL, these were sub-Saharan African trials among treatment-naive patients. And they weren't even designed to look at weight gain to begin with. They were just rolled out to look at general efficacy in the sub-Saharan population because generally the integrase strand inhibitors just were not available then uh, or to those populations. And what they found, they saw increased weights as well as treatment emergent obesity and furthermore, and I thought it was very interesting, they saw a significant difference in weight gain in patients who were receiving tenofovir alafenamide or TAF-based regimens compared to TDF or the older form of tenofovir, tenofovir disoproxofumarate-based regimens. So these were incredibly important trials. And the reason why is because they teased out the data even further. So mind you, remember, we're talking about a sub-Saharan African population in patients who had never received antiretroviral therapy, or at least hadn't received antiretroviral therapy in the last six months. And so what they found is that women were then at higher risk for gaining weight. And they found that there was a 6.4 kilo increase with TAF-containing regimens versus a 1.7 kilo increase for a traditional based regimen that was available. The brand name is a tripla, but the generic is tenofovir disoproxifumarate, emtricitabine, efavirenz. I know very long words as we use all of our HIV medications together in combination. Uh, and those weights were significantly higher than those seen with men. And that was a 4.7 kilo increase with TAF regimens compared to a 0.5 kilo increase with that efavirenz based regimen. And that was at week 48 that was defined then. So not only are we seeing differences with regards to the individual regimens uh, and potentially implicating the integrase inhibitors and potentially also integrating, you know, tenofovir, but also discrepancies uh, with women versus men, that there may be some sort of gender difference here. Dr. Corin, the information that you're referencing was really interesting. I read through one of those studies and understood that integrase inhibitors rely on the fact that HIV needs integrase to replicate. And these drugs stop HIV from being able to make integrase and really like copying itself. And therein lies why I'm connecting this to a possibility of weight gain, but that really depends on the individual. Are there any other factors that can be implicated in weight gain? So absolutely. I mean, I think that it's very easy to blame medications 
outright because it's an outside intervention that someone is prescribing. Uh, but we really need to dig further and really decide, is the medication really at fault here? And so first we can look at lifestyle. You know, we talked at the very beginning of our conversation about, you know, before antiretrovirals were even available and then suddenly giving it to someone causing what was commonly known at the time as the Lazarus effect, you know, raising from the dead then, if you will, uh, where that uh, comes from. But you know, even now that we're looking at patients who are not without significantly advanced HIV suddenly getting to be on antiretrovirals, you know, the concern is, you know, is this the medication or is this just you're feeling better because suddenly you're getting a virus that you have under control? We call that the return to health phenomenon. We can also look at genetics, you know, completely unrelated to HIV. Are you just more predisposed to gain weight? And finally, we can look at medications, but remembering that HIV-related medications are not, may not be the only medications that a patient's receiving. So looking at the complete medication history of that patient as well. So you did mention Advance and Namsol specifically. Are these the only two trials that have demonstrated this phenomenon? So the short answer is no, but the long answer is that we actually have to look at Advance and Namsal to understand where they fell short. And so Advance and Namsal were heavily critiqued at the time because, as I mentioned, that these were in treatment naive patients, meaning patients who had never been on antiretrovirals or had, who had least not been on antiretrovirals in the last six months. So that return to health phenomenon that we just talked about couldn't be ruled out. So what was the implication of people just feeling better and potentially gaining weight just because of that? So essentially, you need to refocus the conversation and refocus the literature and refocus the study. We need to not only look at patients who are on antiretrovirals for the first time, but people who were doing well and doing fine and now switched to these medications that we now have in question. And there have been multiple cohorts that have looked at this. And I'm just going to list a couple. That was NA Accord, which is a large multi-center cohort, as well as you know what my practice is uh, involved in, the CDC uh, HIV outpatient cohorts, which is the HOPS. And you can even look at, I think what's uh, really nice is that there was a very recent article that looked at this. This is from Erlinson and colleagues, and it's published online ahead of print at this point in time in clinical infectious disease. And what they did is they took all of the available literature and pooled it all to data, uh, excuse me, pooled it all together. And what they found looking at, again, a meta-analysis, a study of studies, found that there was significant amounts of weight gain when you switch to an integrase inhibitor-based regimen compared to continuing, uh, continuing what a patient was on previously with a 1.6 versus a 0.4 kilo um, increase at week 48. So, when we take a look a little bit further and we dive down and say, okay, well, if weight gain is happening, how is it happening? And what we don't know is how that happens or why it happens. But what we have figured out so far is that certain medications are a little bit worse than others. We know that the newer integrase inhibitors, dolutegravir, bictegravir, are significantly more implicated than those earlier integrase inhibitors like raltegravir, elvitegravir. But... We have to be honest that as we're gathering more data and as we have a focus on this data, we have to realize what people are actually using these days. So we're going to have more people on more commonly based regimens than earlier medications in the class that we may not have actually been looking at this with that close of an eye. So whether or not there's a sampling bias in this is kind of remains to be seen. 
like we talked about in advanced anomsol, we can't only look at one class and say, well, that's the only class that uh, is problematic here. There may be some problems with tenofovir. And as we've seen with tenofovir, people switching from tenofovir, primarily the uh, primarily the earlier form of tenofovir, disoproxifumarate, whereas there may be an independently implicated some degree of TAF-based weight gain, but there may have also been a weight suppressing effect of the older form. So is this new form causing weight and are we just losing the weight suppressing effect of the old one? So is this a double whammy or is this a single whammy? And we just don't know yet. There hasn't been sufficient amounts of literature. And what we also know is that just like with advanced anomsol, we can say that certain populations are just at more risk than others. Women composed to men, and, and especially noting the non-white women population. What we don't know altogether is what this all means at the end of the day. Weight gain may be one thing, but is that associated with some kind of clinical implication? And there is some very limited emerging literature on this issue, such as the emergence of metabolic syndromes, such as diabetes, but it's still very early to say at this point in time, we're just not quite there yet, but this is a point of current study. Dr. Corn, how do the guidelines approach management of weight gain with people living with HIV? So in order to answer that, we have to say, which guidelines are we looking at? And here in the United States, there are several guidelines. Uh, and the ones that are used by most clinicians here are from the United States Department of Health and Human Services. And what's interesting is that they actually don't met, they don't talk about this whatsoever with one exception. They say that that trunk fat has been observed, but that a causal relationship has not been established. And so my take home point to the listening population is that while it's very likely that the guidelines are going to weigh in in the future, especially as more data has come out, but that the benefits of using integrase inhibitors still outweigh the risks or alternatives. So, so far, none of the data has really said, we have this problem, we need to start using something else. But rather, we have these signals, we have these issues that need to be assessed on maybe an individual patient basis, but that these medications are still first line. You know, I have noticed an increase in pharmacists acting in consultative roles in senior care in institutional patients, hospital systems, and community pharmacy, where they are becoming involved in nutrition and uh, lifestyle management and weight management even. And I think that's great because it gives pharmacists a whole nother level of, of practicing at the height of their license. So in this subject, how do we assess and manage weight gain? So to reiterate something you just said, I think it's absolutely fantastic that pharmacists are taking more ownership over the overall health outcomes of their patients. Not that we weren't before, but now to an entirely new level. And we need to make sure that we are monitoring our patients individually because there is no magic number or specific guardrail of what weight gain means. And as we look at each of these trials that have come out, you know, they each use different markers for measuring what does weight gain mean. So we have to look at this from a hyper specific or hyper individualistic perspective. So we need to make sure that we're looking at the common things such as vital signs at every visit, looking at the height and weight of the patient. And so we need to make sure that we are paying attention 
toward concerning changes for that individual patient, as opposed to some broad base. Well, if a patient gains or loses four pounds, that may mean something very different for a patient that starts at 150 pounds or a patient that starts at 250 pounds. But we need to always, again, put this in perspective that the benefits of maintaining virologic suppression far outweigh the otherwise risks, such as, you know, if HIV is uncontrolled, we leave the patient at an increased immunologic state or, you know, at significant risk, if a patient suddenly loses their virologic control, this may cause some degrees of inflammation and put that patient at risk for cardiovascular events, such as heart attacks or stroke. So regardless, making sure that a patient is adherent to their regimen and achieving virologic, virologic suppression is paramount. But we also need to look at other factors. You know, again, it's easy to blame the medications, but we have to dig further. Are there other factors that can be ruled out, such as stress? And I, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people are stressed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, does that have some kind of implication here? And what about any changes in diet or exercise? You know, if a patient suddenly comes to me and says, you know, I gained five pounds on this medication, and then you dig a little bit further and you said, well, they weren't exercising as much as they used to, maybe diet totally changed, that's suddenly significantly more likely to have caused that change in weight than possibly the medication and should be ruled out first. I would think, Dr. Corin, that there may be a time element to this, and that is patients that are starting a therapy versus patients who have been used to a therapy and allowing themselves to get used to that, as well as understanding that an aspect of health, regardless of your disease state, does come back to taking care of yourself with exercise and diet and understanding how that can actually help your treatment and your therapy too. Absolutely. So again, medication-related treatment is only one part of overall HIV-related treatment. You know, the vast majority of my patients that come to me these days are suppressed, and the HIV is not the primary problem that they're coming to me with. You know, the HIV cohort is aging in the United States, and you know, now we have problems that uh, you know we may not have seen in earlier generations, such as you know osteoporosis and cardiovascular diseases. You know, general diseases of aging, like we're here to talk about today. And so this is a great problem to have, but is now something we need to address. And who better to manage these medication-related therapies than pharmacists? You're singing, uh, you're singing to the choir. I love this. Absolutely <laughs> love this. So what therapies could be considered in initiating treatment or adjusting therapy uh, should, should weight gain become a concern? So I think it's important to say that if you look at the guidelines, and you look at how the guidelines state, what are the quote unquote first line regimens for people living with HIV? The guidelines actually don't use the words first line. They say recommended initial regimens for most people living with HIV. And all of those regimens, even with these concerns, are integrase inhibitor-based therapies. But if weight gain is such a sufficient concern that either the provider or patient deem the integrase inhibitor class you know, unusable, there are other regimens. And so you look a little bit further in that guidelines, and this says recommended clinical situations in certain uh, recommended regimens in certain clinical situations. And we see here some alternative classes such as Darunavir. And there happens to be a single tablet regimen that includes Darunavir, that being the brand name Simtuza or Tenofovir, Elefenamide, Emtricitabine, Darunavir, and Cobisostat. Or you can look at the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor class, such as 
Duraverine. And there again is a single tablet regimen that includes Duraverine. The combination of tenofovir, disoproxifumarate, lamivudine, and Duraverine known as Delstrigo. So just because you may not jump to an integrase inhibitor doesn't necessarily mean you've automatically increased that patient's pill burden. There are other single tablet regimens that are available should the clinical situation uh, warrant. And while we do need further study and the clinical monitoring is all also recommended, there are additional two drug regimens that are also in this uh, in this regimen class, or excuse me, in this recommendation. Um, they may include some integrase inhibitors, but they may not include some of those nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors like tenofovir. And um, these being the combinations of cabotegravir and ropivirine, that brand new injectable, fully injectable regimen for HIV known as cabinuva, or looking at dolutegravir lamivudine, again, avoiding tenofovir, which is the brand name combination of Devato. And you can look at those as potentially other alternatives. I can imagine two listeners right now that are pharmacists, those pharmacists who are, are specialty pharmacists who are dealing specifically with HIV, uh, people living with HIV and their their ownership of those patients. It's very important. And I can, I can think of the other side, which is our pharmacists who don't have as an intense patient base that may be living with HIV. But when I think of what you're saying, I'm, I'm also wondering what can pharmacists specifically do to help assess and manage weight gain? So to speak really quickly about the two different types of pharmacists that may be listening out there, you know, HIV is a very specific and very unique skill set. You know, I personally am fortunate to do HIV day in and day out, but recognizing that, you know, there is they're constantly evolving guidelines. And, you know, these may be medications that have a lot of individual quirks and things of that nature, but always remembering that there is a network of pharmacists and of HIV related experts that are here to be called on in case you have any questions as the case may be. But as pharmacists are uniquely positioned to assess adherence, regardless of your experience with HIV, uh, we can ensure virologic suppression, which is the primary goal of HIV treatment. And so this should always take precedence over everything else. And so what pharmacists can generally do, regardless of your experience with HIV, is to identify risk factors that may contribute to weight gain, such as changes in diet and potentially the adverse drug effects of prescribed medications, whether or not it's HIV related. We can then look at non-pharmacologic options for managing weight gain, potentially recommending that a patient go to nutrition services or uh, be prescribed nutrition services, excuse me, or encourage regular exercise to whatever extent is recommended by a patient's clinician. Beyond that, that's where pharmacists really shine and looking at pharmacologic options to manage weight gain. And it's actually something that I, as a specific HIV specialist, have very little experience with because I'm so concerned with the antiretrovirals. So I turn to my internal medicine colleagues all the time and ask them for their help, such as with the GLP-1 inhibitors. And, you know, at the end of the day, if it's the HIV regimen or if a patient uh, or if the situation warrants a change in the HIV regimen, then that may be an option that needs to be uh, taken care of, which is done in combination with an HIV specialist, whether that's an HIV trained pharmacist or an infectious disease provider or an HIV trained uh, clinician. We have so many options to treat patients who are living with HIV these days. And so we can individualize therapy, which is a luxury we could not have said a few years back 
And because of this individualizing therapy, we can ensure that patients are able to tolerate and adhere to their prescribed regimens. But we also need to remember that there's an underlying factor here of disparities in care because there are specific at-risk populations. You know, we mentioned advanced anamsal, which was specifically in a sub-Saharan, almost entirely black population. And noting that weight gain may also carry different normalities based on cultural norms. So we have to be culturally literate with the patients that we serve because we need to always act in, an, at least my personal mantra here is always to counsel with, a, with an angle of patient empowerment, because then the patient's also taking um, stake in their own healthcare and they're an active participant. Dr. Corn, earlier in today's discussion, you mentioned how the, Im the impact of the pandemic has had on treatment. And that's not just people that are living with HIV. This is a multitude of different treatments. I've heard so much about this in children that are staying home, uh, parents that have to put up a, a, a new way of life and managing life and work and family life. And I thought of the mental health aspect of this and how someone that was living with HIV, just like any human being, could go through different levels of, of feeling depressed one time and, and maybe not so much the next. I think that's an impact to our diet, um, that it's an impact to my diet and the way that I feel um, Absolutely. About myself. So what do you think and how do you think mental health plays a role into the overall treatment uh, of those living with HIV? So from a pharmacist perspective, we can make all kinds of different interventions for adherence. We can encourage uh, pill boxes. We can encourage concurrent medication taking. We can encourage all sorts of different physical interventions. Uh, but as you mentioned, if there's a layer of mental health that may interfere with the patient's ability to adhere with the regimen, then we need to make sure that we are partnering with specialists and providers that have those specific skill sets. I like to say that we're very spoiled in the HIV world because we give wraparound care with uh, many of our patients, meaning that we have different kinds and different types of providers usually cohabitated. And so we can work with, you know, our mental health providers and our nutritionists and our social workers and our case managers, because as a pharmacist, I can do my best to make the access to medication the last thing that the patient needs to worry about. But I, I may not be available to link that patient to housing services or may not be available to know about specific grants that may help them keep the lights on. All of these all of these different things are different levels of stress, and we need to make sure that we are working as a, an interdisciplinary team to bring all of our skill sets to the forefront on behalf of the patient. Dr. Corrin, this has been an amazing opportunity for us to learn and really appreciate your insights, especially because you're a specialist in this. And by the way, that's a, that's a growing facet of our pharmacy industry is this specialist pharmacist. And that's very exciting for me, someone who listens to so many sectors of healthcare and the partnership with pharmacists and uh, other collaborators and providers. In wrapping up today, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? The big take-home point from today is that persons living with HIV who are adherent to their antiretroviral regimens are living long, full lives. And research has really shifted to address quality of life and non-HIV-related 
diseases of aging. So weight gain due to the use of integrase inhibitors has been established, particularly in non-white women, which is where most of the data comes from, and monitoring should be conducted regularly at each clinical visit. And if for some reason that an integrase inhibitor should be precluded, there are alternatives from different classes that are available, such as your protease inhibitors or your non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. But integrase inhibitor-based regimens remain first-line therapy for most people living with HIV. Dr. Corin, I want to thank you for today's episode. This was amazing. I learned a lot, and I'm sure there are pharmacist listeners did as well. I encourage pharmacists listening to take a look at PTCE Connect uh, podcast. There are several episodes that we have that really dig into specific disease states and conditions. Dr. Corin, thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.